I'm Evelyn Glennie, and you're listening to the Evelyn Glennie Podcast. There are few musicians who can say they've won a Grammy for both jazz and classical albums, let alone in the same year, and indeed twice. Well, my guest today has achieved just that, and in fact, a total of nine Grammys, along with a mountain of other global awards for performances, recordings, composing, presenting, education, and much, much more. Well, with his incredible diversity and drive to bring the wonders of jazz and classical to all people far and wide, Wynton Marsalis is indeed a trailblazer and visionary. I'm intrigued to find out what keeps him grounded amidst such a dizzying and varied career and how his core beliefs reflect the enormity of his creative output. Thank you, Wynton, so, so very much for your time. And, and I know that you're extremely busy, but actually you're used to a pretty dizzying kind of pace, aren't you, really? But how has that changed in the past year and a bit for you? Yes, ma'am. First, it's, a, it's an honor for me to speak with you. <laughs> thank you. You know, I, I have so much respect for you and your artistry, so thank you for talking to me. Oh, heavens, it's my pleasure. Yes. Yeah, I've been busier this year because uh, our organization decided to con- continue to work and put things out. So I would say the last 15, 16 or 17 months is the busiest I've ever been it's um, not- in my life. Isn't that funny in a way, you know, for, for some people, it's, it's, it's gone the other way. And it's, it's quite hard to fathom, you know, what, what really is happening. Yeah, well, yes, ma'am. It's, it's, it's been a blessing for us to continue to do what we do and keep our community together and continue to work on music. And the, this was a time that, that our people needed the music and the different things we do more than ever. And we decided to stay in play early on in the pandemic. And it meant that we had to deal with a revenue loss of, you know, Mm. millions of dollars and just figure out how we could keep our staff and our orchestra and everybody together. And we we managed to do it. But it was it wasn't it wasn't fun. (laughs) No, I can imagine. But I suppose, you know, when you have this sort of uh, unified aim and will and and I mean, this has kind of been a trait right through your career. Yes, ma'am. I think, you know, when people have a common goal and um, they, they believe in the meaning of something that's greater than their participation, I think we, we galvanize. We see it all the time whenever there's some type of tragedy, a hurricane, storms, uh, national disasters, people come together because we, we can see what the goal is. And we see it all the time in teams. Teams have tremendous adversity and they come together. So the same thing is true. My question always for me is, why don't we do that when we don't have that type of, uh, you know, why, why don't we, can you hold on, hold on one second, I'm sorry, I just got to, I'm, I'm coming right back, I'm really sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm coming back, I'm sorry. There I was, you are. I was in a restaurant, I didn't realize what time it was. <laughs> I was actually sitting down in a restaurant and it was like six minutes to this interview and I was, I had ordered a, a coffee and everything. I had a nice rapport going with the guy. With a, with a, with a, and, and my friend t- took care of the, the bill and everything. He just brought me my coffee. So I just, I had to, I had to answer the door. I'm really sorry. Well, we my, don't. I have my, my, my time's mixed up. <laughs> well, we don't want you to starve. That's for sure. <laughs> no. 
But it is interesting what you're saying, really, you know, how, why, why can't this sort of feeling of, of togetherness of, of, I mean, do you feel that our listening changes when, you know, we're, we're using the arts to navigate through a disaster or through challenges and darkness and so on? You know, how does our listening change? I think our listening changes when we're under duress, like, I was on a plane that almost crashed once. And, and I can tell you that <laughs> when people realized something very bad was happening and the, the pilot came on the microphone, everybody was absolutely quiet. <laughs> it was like a level of focus and concentration on every word. And I just feel like, uh, you know, the, the routine takes us out of the specialness of each day and each moment. And I think that the arts, every artist, whatever their field is, and even, even if it's things you don't like, they spend a lot of time trying to give people some type of, of nourishment, even if it's even if it's just spectacle. Mm. And I think that uh, things that are meaningful, of course, that are not, not relying on spectacle to, to, to dazzle people, but are trying to communicate when there's a challenge, with that challenge comes silence. You know, it's, it's after any, it's like a, a, a kind of attention and then um, the, the, the normal everyday uh, comp- competitive spirit of everybody, all those normal everyday things can be focused and channeled towards things of meaning and value if enough is at stake and if your populace can understand that something is at stake. Mm. Now, sometimes, you, you know, you don't recognize that something is at stake, so you just do the best that you can do with what you, what you have. But the arts tie all of, a, of humanity together if you have been exposed to them and you understand that they give you a timeline of human history and also they give you solutions to problems that have always existed. Many times for a lot of us, we haven't, we haven't received that type of education, so it's not possible for us to. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's, like, it's like you don't know how to use the technology. You, we use our cell phones every day, but most of us, we, don't, we do four or five things on them. Mm. We don't know they can do 405 things or a thousand things. So I know that's a long answer. No, it's absolutely fascinating. And I I think what has been so uh, inspiring, uh, observing your journey as a musician is, uh, you know, how you communicate, not just through your playing as that musician, but how uh, vocally, you know, you speak about it and how it really reaches so many different generations, all people all across the globe. And and I, I think that sometimes we're taught to be a certain type of musician. And I'm just curious that in your case, you know, you have won Grammys for jazz and classical albums. You've you've just won a myriad of awards for so many different types of disciplines. And I, 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 in a way, I'm slightly speechless here and I, I'm in, in complete awe as well. But as a young musician, when you picked that trumpet or, or when you were given the trumpet by your father, and I believe that it was several years before you actually got lessons on it. I think some, something like from the age of six until 12. Do you think that period was so crucial for you just to explore the instrument in your way? No, you know, I wasn't really thinking about the instrument during that time. But I want to I want to say also talking to you, you've had a fascinating journey with uh, with 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 many things, triumphs, obstacles to overcome and, and, and continue to. So, you know, we all have we all have different degrees of things, you know, and I mean, certainly 
to, to speak with you to, 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 to talk about, you, you know all about the thing that you've asked me. I wasn't really serious about the music. I was just a, a typical black kid in a segregated Louisiana town born in 1960. So we played football. We did the stuff we did, some intelligent, some dumb. I did whatever everybody else did. Played a lot of ball. I didn't, wasn't, I wasn't, I'm, I'm going to be an artist and all that. We didn't even, that wasn't a part of our vocabulary. Now, my father, on the other hand, was an artist. He was very intelligent, very uh, universal in his thinking, very different from everyone in that time. That embarrassed me when we would be like in a barbershop or something, because I was very much into the whole black nationalist movement and the tribalism that grips people when they feel like there's a chance for a victory with your tribe. My father, however, was never about that. He was a universal humanist in a time and in a place that no one was like that. So he seemed like a, a person from another planet. Most of what I have talked about or that I've done in my time come from him. Mm. I was always with him. I was around him. And I didn't agree with a lot of him. But most times I was making him laugh because he was very serious. <laughs> whereas I joked and played and clowned all the time. He was a sensitive person, whereas I was a guy who would be more out in the street fighting and didn't care. and was always good at athletics and that kind of stuff. My father was one of the worst quarterbacks in American football ever. <laughs> he, could, he would throw passes and you would be wondering, man, how does a man get to be your age and throw passes that are this ugly? <laughs> so... You know, the one thing I said when I had kids, I'm going to make sure I can throw a football <laughs> with accuracy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I joked and teased with him a lot. But I think, I, if of anything, talking to people, a kind of universal human message and the importance of the, of the overall and the attempt to seek. My father was very philosophical. So he always was looking at the largest group, the largest. And no, none of us, nobody was thinking like that in that time. Not just us. I mean, we're kids. We where we were segregated behind the second set of railroad tracks in the Mississippi River in Kennel, Louisiana, and all of what that was between 1965 and 73 and 74. Playing trumpet was not, nobody was playing any type of music except whatever was on the radio. And uh, yeah, I think the, the education I received from him about being a human being has, has helped me. And, and as I've nodded, my father passed away last year. But I think just... Uh, Having an example of him, he liked classical music. He was the one who would say, man, you know, check out Haydn or check out Bach or check out one of his friends, was one of the, the uh, concerto competition to play with the New Orleans Philharmonic in the 50s. And that was a time when, believe me, nobody black was, <laughs> they weren't. Mm -hmm. That's so abstract. His name was Alvin Baptiste. He's a great clarinetist. So I grew up with them. And, then, you know, they were kind of wild too. Like they had their thing, but. They, they believed in the kind of bringing cultures together. When I, when I left home when I was 17, my father gave me the book Autobiography of a Yogi about, about Paramahansa Yogananda. And I, all the years I was with him, I hung out in clubs every night time I was born, I was always with him. He never said a single word about a yogi ever. <laughs> I thought, this guy could give me a 500-page book with a bunch of people's names while I'm leaving his house somewhat contentiously. You know, so, I mean, with him, it was always enough. I always wanted to impress him or always wanted to make him make him proud or make him and you know he wasn't he didn't just like everything so he, sometimes <laughs> I would do stuff and he'd be like man if you lost your brain or what <laughs> but of course your, you know, your your whole family is musical I mean your 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 brothers you've almost got an orchestra within within one household was there a sense of competitiveness or did you draw inspiration from each other or did you just do your own thing 
in the early yeah, we, days. We were we're different ages. Like you know, me and my older brother Bradford were together. It was competitive, but he played saxophone. So you know, it's mm -hmm. we played together in a funk band. We played pop music. We played so many gigs together. It's my brother, mm -hmm. and then my our younger brothers. One of them played trombone. You know, he was four years younger than me, so it wasn't really like we were in the same. We didn't play a lot together. Mm. And my my third brother is three years younger. We always he was he always was studying, so he he was like he knew more than the rest of us. He wasn't a good musician. Now we call him the Oracle. You know, we call the Oracle. If you want to know who read the health bill, call the Oracle. If you want to understand the relationship of symbiosis to predation, call the Oracle. So the Oracle ended up being my father's closest brother. Like of all the brothers, oh my father loved the Oracle because the Oracle is philosophical. And uh, my little brother, Jason, I was 15 when he was born. And one of our brothers is severely autistic. I was nine when he was born. So our family life also was very dysfunctional, like a kind of typical black family, a lot of pressure on it, no money, a lot of father and mother, you know, issues, things that come from slavery, American slavery puts a lot of pressure on the male-female relationship. And it just spirals down generation to generation. So we didn't live like a fairy tale type of, uh, of life. It was hard. My parents were struggling. They struggled with each other and they struggled with their environment. And there was a reality to all of it. And inside of that, my father played music and could really play, but we actually didn't have the cultural context to put him in. Nobody liked what he was playing. Nobody knew what he was playing. Uh, not like my friends in my neighborhood listened to jazz, modern jazz. We in New Orleans, which basically if you couldn't smile for tourists and tap dance, nobody really wanted to hear what you were playing. He was playing a type of jazz who listened to it. I was always in clubs with him, five people, four, seven people, years of, of struggle. So, you know, we ended up playing music, but we never had the kind of family catharsis around music like you would think that we would have. Mm. It, it, that really wasn't the tenor of our home life. That's really interesting. And I mean, the decision then to go to Juilliard, I mean, the, 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 I'm intrigued by that because obviously that's, I would imagine at the time was more classically streamlined. Am I right or or not? Yeah, but for me, I was so black. Like I, had, I had come so much from the hood and was played ball. I was so much in our culture. Like it was like mm. Julia was exotic. You know, I mean, uh. it's, it's hard to it's hard to explain kind of the, the type of upbringing we played. Mainly, you know, my brother and I we playing. Every night, Stevie Wonder, Earth, Wind, and Fire, stuff for dances, wedding receptions, proms. In our neighborhood, we're mainly playing ball. I mean, I, I got to scholarship, a scholarship going, going to high school to play basketball. I wasn't even playing music. <laughs> and then I went to a high school that was experimental in New Orleans. It was an arts high school. And it was, in New Orleans, everything was, there was a brief period in the 70s where it was kind of integrated. The races met each other. Because in the South, everything is racism. Mm. So the environment would be all black. So the first school was called the New Orleans Center for Creative Arts. When I first started to go, because my father was a teacher there, it was black and then it became half white and then mainly white. So, you know, I was in that transition where it was kind of, and the teachers were unbelievable because in New Orleans, you had a lot of great musicians. What were they going to do there? Like the populace was not interested in the music. So my father was a jazz teacher and I had an unbelievable classical music theory and performance teacher named Dr. Bert Brooks. He passed away. But where are you going to be have a doc, a guy with a doctorate in music, like we call him doc, teaching high school students for, for $20,000 a year, $25,000, whatever they were paying. It wasn't any money. Only New Orleans. You know, you could have that person like that. And, and this teacher was so advanced. 
he, he taught us how to analyze Bach chorales. He taught us how to analyze Beethoven's symphonies. He taught us to listen to Pendereski's music, Ligeti's music. He taught us theme and variation using Bach Goldberg variations and, and also Miles Davis' Funny Valentine in concert from the 1964 concert that he transcribed. So the level of education was extremely high just because these teachers were so frustrated being in that environment. And they only had six students, seven. My father teaching jazz for free in a public high school in New Orleans got down to one student in 1983. It's unbelievable, you know, when you when you really describe all of this. And it's quite funny because I remember uh, as a student at the Royal Academy of Music in London, where uh, in my latter year, I think jazz was just being introduced and that felt very exotic. So it was the other way around. Right. right. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, you, you know, in, in, in our in our classes in high school in the 70s, the teachers, like the my classical theory teacher, loved my father, and he loved the vocal music teacher. So it was all what they were doing. It was integrated arts. It was a consciousness, and they were on a very, a very high and different. All of them were philosophical, and in terms of going to Juilliard, we had three students. One guy was named Moses Hogan. But Moses Hogan was a guy who, when I was thirteen, he was a senior in high school at this the New Orleans Center for Creative Arts. He got a full scholarship to Oberlin. So everybody said, man, Moses got a scholarship. Oh, Moses really could play piano. And he ended up having a group called the Moses Hogan uh, Singers of the Chorale. And he, he redefined the Negro spiritual in his time. He, he did unbelievable things with his ensemble. And even still, one of his arrangements of Didn't My Lord Deliver Daniel is the definitive arrangement sung by choirs all over the world. So he was a senior in high school playing piano. Then there was a guy after him, two years, named Kent Jordan. He played flute. And he got a full scholarship to Eastman. So, you know, even though we were country, it was like, man, Kent. And Kent was the guy who made me start practicing because I was always playing basketball and clowning around and playing. And he was playing flute. And I was teasing him because he played flute. Man, you a dude playing flute. Who ever heard of this kind of stuff? You know, and he said, man, I'll, I'll take you out on the court and whip you up behind. Well, I was, I was like, man, I play ball. I'm not like a musician. You know, he came out there and actually was credible with his game. And I thought. Hey, if a guy can have a credible game playing flute, I need to start practicing. So I started, I started, I mean, you know, that was back in those times. Now, of course, I've been trained out of saying that kind of stuff. But back then, okay, I'm, I'm reminiscing. Then you didn't see a lot of men playing flute. And then um, then I said, well, Kent got a scholarship to Eastman. I, I'm going to get a scholarship to Juilliard, you know. So we were kind of competitive with each other. And uh, so that's what the whole genesis of the thinking was. And then after me, the actor, Wendell Pierce, went to the same high school. He also got a scholarship to Juilliard in theater. So we had a tradition going in the school. It has spanned the whole kind of decade, spanned from like 70, 76 to 84, 85, something like that. It's incredible. And, and it's extraordinary how, you know, at such a young age, the, the landscape of your musical attention i think you know the listening and the attention and the 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 i mean clearly you were like a sponge you still remember the teachers names and and how they influenced you i, I mean that's quite extraordinary and i wonder whether the music establishments are uh, beginning now to open up this kind of uh, lateral listening as it were uh, in in a student's life you know, I, I don't, different academies are different, different teachers are different. Mm. Like I was lucky to be in that high school at that time. 
And the, each teacher teaches in different ways based on what they know. And mm. from a philosophical standpoint, philosophy itself means a broader view. Mm. So some people's view aperture is open and some are not. If you're lucky to have really fantastic teachers, they teach you out of a prejudiced tribal viewpoint. If not, they teach you a dogma. And, uh, you know, the, the whole kind of Socratic method of teaching was the way they taught more. So many questions. For me, it was just fortunate to be with them and to be around them. And uh, I remember at that high school, a, a group came from Africa of dancers, a guy named Ishangi. And they gave a class. And our, our classes went from 1.30 or 1 o'clock to 5 o'clock. So if you were a student at that school, you went to your regular academic school from 8 o'clock to 12 o'clock. And then you were in the school from 1 o'clock to 5 o'clock. So <laughs> your school day was substantial. Mm. We stayed in the assembly of the school with this guy and his dancers till 7 o'clock, asking him questions. And I remember the worldview he had was so different from our worldview and just like the sophistication of what they were doing. Because, you know, we, in America, we were, we were taught Africans were just, you know, basically savages, didn't know anything. We didn't know any history. We were ignorant. We taught with, and I remember how my father and Bert Bro and our teachers, the questions they were asking, hey, they were the adults. Man, they were asking more questions than us. They were like, well, what does this mean? Or what? And it was all about meaning. And when I saw my teachers, all very different people, my father's very different from Bert Bro, my theory teacher, very different from, but, but the enthusiasm they showed for the information about what the dance meant, the different orbits of the male and female orbit of the rhythm, the three rhythm, the six rhythm, the four rhythm, all the things they were talking about, how, what rituals mean, how you give meaning to a rhythm. Oh, all this. And I thought, man, it's, it's fascinating to see them more interested in learning about this than us. We need to be more interested in the world. Mm. And I feel like that's more uh, affected me. And as, it was at a young age. So as I went through life, I didn't, I didn't necessarily, I wasn't taught to think that whatever I knew defined the world and to know that whatever I knew defined the world of what I knew. And that wasn't that much. <laughs> My mama used to always say, you just another person out here, but she didn't use the word person. She used a <laughs> colloquial term. You just another person out here, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's absolutely fascinating what you're, what you're saying. And, and, you know, the, 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 the passion and, and how you you speak and you remember the you know the, the people that that have that has influenced you I mean this is so much a living thing and you feel this through your music making as well as though this is a once in a lifetime kind of experience and I, I always find that when you play it it's as though I have to be there I have to be there and it's not something that I feel crumbs I, I'll, I'll just record it and listen to it, you know, another time. It's it's everything that you give that is just incredibly powerful. Well, you're speaking about yourself. And you, <laughs> if you think about all of the, if you think about all the calibrations you have to make, all the instincts you have to put in place, all of the things you you observe and all the senses you use to to work the way that you work and the, and the subtlety and the nuance, because. Of course, you you deal with so much precision and, uh, and soul because a lot of times somebody doesn't know that a, an instrument that struck, I often tell a drummer when we're playing that the most emotional instrument on a jazz bandstand is the ride cymbal. Mm. Like you may think it's a trumpet or somebody singing, but the most emotion, the thing that covers the most space, the highest frequency, the thing that is the most 
present in the music and the most definitive of the sound of it is that ride symbol. And it's, it's, it's like that, that ride symbol has an identity to it. So, you know, I mean, yeah, I believe in it. And, and I'm going to believe in it until the day that I die. I believe in this. Mm. I believe in integrity. I believe in playing. I believe in, in the elevation of people. I, I don't care what populist movements come up. I don't, I don't, because I saw my father be like that. I saw him stand in barbershops, and it's a small place, but it's what he was saying was very general, in the midst of like nationalist movement and be against what everybody said. <laughs> and I wasn't with him. I was against him, and he was always calm. He was never angry. He was always, man, I, you know, and he would be refuting all of these arguments so clearly. And he always, the, the compass always pointed to true north. <laughs> Even <laughs> I never, after, after I won the first Grammy, two Grammys, I'd invited my parents to come out. And, you know, I like to go to parties and I grew up playing pop music. I was out in the street always clowning and dancing and acting a fool. So after the Grammys, I won two awards, which I didn't even know what the Grammys were before I won them. I didn't follow that, but really. So my father had sat through it and he was he was horrified by how sad all the music was, you know? He was like, damn, this is the Grammys, man. And he, he, they can't even, I could just hear it. He was like, oh man, this is the biggest crock of bull. So, but he, you know, he wasn't saying nothing to me because he didn't want to, he didn't want to douse me. But he was wondering, man, is this guy, after all I taught him, is this guy actually believing in this stuff? So we in the, we in the hotel room with him and my mom, we get ready to go out and party. We want to know, was, hey man, we get ready to go out and party, man. My daddy looked at me and he said, hey man, you don't think this means you can play, do you? <laughs> I started laughing. I started to laugh. I was like 22 or something, 21. I said, nah, man, I, 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 I know better than this, man. I know who can play. Uh, this is just a party, man. This is not serious. This is a joke. This, you know, I said, come on, man. You know me better than that. And he, we both started laughing. But that's how he was. You know, he was like a true North guy. Like, just, he, he, he was. So, yeah. Uh, brilliant. I mean, just thinking about the, the, the physical aspect of playing trumpet in the, the kind of classical way I'm, I'm kind of putting that in one box and the jazz way what are those in a in a nutshell in a way the 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 key key differences from a physical point of view in, in projecting the, the sound well a, a attack in classical music is it's like that and, and it's it many times is the loudest most present thing on a bandstand like oh. when, it's, when the first trumpet is playing with an orchestra, if it's forte, you're hearing it. A jazz trumpet player first is that you're playing many more attacks because you're improvising. You can attack any way that you want. Oh. And you're trying to make it be more vocal, like how you are speaking. And your tradition comes from Louis Armstrong, who played with a lot of different attacks. And then drums are always playing. So <laughs> your forte is fortissimo. Like, and you're also playing a trumpet and a drum. Every instrument in jazz is also a drum. Mm. So, you know, if you if you take, the, also in classical music, there are traditions, like classical music is double tongue and the triple tongue in jazz, we don't really do that. So if you take, I mean, there's so many famous excerpts of, of trumpet playing, it's just with double tongue, with triple tongue. It, it, Stravinsky always, the solos, you got a triple tongue and double tongue all the time. Mm. In jazz, you almost never hear that. Uh, but, and also jazz is the limitation of your technique. You play what you, you invent mm. your style. So as an instrumentalist, whatever you can invent, like somebody like Dizzy Gillespie, you hear him play, you can't believe somebody ever played that on the trumpet. Nobody would write it. 
<laughs> There's no composer ever will write anything that crazy on the trumpet, but mm. he plays it. So, you know, in that way, it's different. And I think probably this, you know, from a composer's point of view, because you bring so much rich, richness from the, the jazz uh, landscape and the classical together, I mean, it's almost creating a, a, a another type of music in a way. Yeah, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm mainly, I feel like, you don't need a, a person from jazz who knows the blues and that vocabulary to try to be like a, a, a classical composer with, with, the, with all of the techniques that they bring and all the skills and what they, they already have a lot of stuff covered. Mm. And, and what I, my, my challenge is to figure out how to get the symphonic orchestra to swing and play with blues feeling and to, play, to perform the actual difficulties of playing jazz and deal with the American tradition of fiddle songs and things that are Afro-American in nature that would have been in American music were it not for the deep, deep, deep rooted prejudice and ignorance that has, has stifled our democracy and left us so intellectually bereft, uh, spiritually bereft, and it's just really crippled our culture in so many ways that we can't see. We, we tend to only equate it with a protest or somebody not getting a job. There's so many ways I always say so much of the pornographication of our general culture comes from the slave culture. And when you begin to perceive a culture across hundreds of years, you start to see how a decision made in 1806 affects something that goes on in 2046. And that is the nature of philosophy and the nature of, of understanding the, the patterns in history. So uh, I try as much as possible to bring traditions that should have been brought together long before uh, I was born, but they could not be brought together because of because of ignorance. Mm. I, I just I'm fairly conscious of time, uh, Winton. And um, so one just a couple of you, questions. You, you're more than fairly conscious of you, <laughs> time is your business. You're in the business of time. I, uh... <laughs> you know, I, I, I was always friends with a lot of the jazz drummers for some reason. I got to tell you that. <laughs> of, of the musicians I knew, it was everybody from Elvin Jones to Philly Joe Jones oh. to to to, to uh, uh, the list goes on. Art Blakey, Danny Richmond, Ben Riley, all the greatest drummers. For some reason, I always knew them and hung with them. Me and Philly Joe would always hang. And they always said, don't, don't ever fight a drummer because they're moving their hands all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and you've certainly mentioned some giants there, that's for sure, you know. Um, yeah, I love you. Oh, gosh. And you mentioned the, the ride symbol earlier, but, you know, the hi-hat is pretty important as well, eh? Yeah, the hi-hat is important, but the, the musicians, they got to make sure they don't play the hi-hat too much on two and four to turn it into a backbeat. You know, mm -hmm. so that ding, 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 make it sound like pop music. But mm -hmm. the great Joe Jones, Papa Joe Jones, who I also knew, played with Bass Band in the 30s, He's the one who actually showed us how to really sing and dance on that, on that, on that, on that hi-hat. Oh, my goodness. And on that note, on the hi-hat note. <laughs> well, goodness, we were slightly cut off rather abruptly there. But that was Wynton Marsalis. And can I say what an incredible experience it's been to chat with him. Of a... Uh... You've got to get your food. No, now I'm getting on my clothes. <laughs> it's, it's okay. Gracias. And just to confirm to those who are listening to us that you are actually wearing clothes, just to be really clear about this. <laughs> <laughs>
Don't don't have no fear about that. I'm American. I get like eight trainings a year about how to say hello to people. So it's <laughs> don't worry. So, so okay, Señora, gracias. I would like to say a very special thank you to Audio Network for supporting my podcast. Thank you so much for listening. See you in my next one.